brother, whatever I have done to wrong you, whatever I have done to lead you to do this, I am truly sorry. But these people are innocent. Taking their lives will gain you nothing. In the 12th season of this podcast, we're going to get somewhat unordinary and take a turn towards the sacred and the shining ones. In other words, what we're going to do is to take a look at five different gods. Now, suffice it to say, these are beings with powers a little greater than ours. And if we let them, they're beings that'll take us to new levels of consciousness, beyond the profane concerns of everyday life. So let's cross that domestic threshold, shall we? And make our way towards that sanctified dimension. So here we go. Everyone, bring out your cups. It's time to pour your libations to those exalted and divine ones, without which the commonplace might rule. This is the wisdom of, and this is episode four, that hammer-wielding Norse god, Thor. Let's, let's talk about ignorance as, as best as I can understand it. I don't know. I may be too ignorant to give ignorance its full due, but best as I can see, there are two types of ignorant people. One I see a lot is the bizarre, widespread, but really bizarre, the, the, the willful, the pridefully ignorant, the, you know, yeah, I don't know anything about such and such, and doesn't that make me such an interesting person? Dare I say, an iconoclastic human being? No, sorry, I don't have other traits. Developing personality is hard. Not knowing things is way easier. The other way to be ignorant is to simply not know. They may care to rectify it, they may not, but it doesn't really matter because everyone is ignorant about something. There's no way around it. I bring this up because you, you are the latter, thankfully. Completely ignorant in so many ways, but I tend not to hear you brag much about it. But here it is. 
the culturally dominant movie franchise of the 21st century has completely passed you by. I'm not sure, but I don't think you've seen a single minute of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So anybody dropping into today's episode for a focus on that Thor might be a bit disappointed, but I might pick up the slack a bit. Marvel? What's that? Hey, what can I tell you? Life is short. I got priorities. Um, so yeah, you're, you're right. You might have to pick up the slack on this one. Okay, so let's start with the only Thor that I know anything about. So Thor was the, the Norse god of thunder and lightning. And he was probably the most worshipped of any of the heathen gods throughout pre-Christian Northern Europe. He was the son of Odin, the chief Norse god. He had a, a magic hammer that he used to defend the other gods and humankind with, usually against the, the dreaded enemies, the frost giants. Thor was uh, physically huge, with uh, superhuman strength, and he had a big red beard. There are numerous tales of his expeditions and adventures, where he's depicted as trying, in one way or another, to protect the world against the incursion of the forces of chaos and destruction. Now, I should also briefly give some larger context here, too. So, Norse mythology came from a group or race of people that inhabited what today are the, the Scandinavian countries, um, Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. But when Christianity spread to Northern Europe in the 11th century, these myths were, were mostly wiped out. However, at this time the Vikings went to colonize Iceland, and fortunately they managed to preserve the myths there. And it was here that they were first written down. We had an episode within our, our season on the wisdom of beauty, an episode on sports. In that episode, you talked a bit about the artistry of hockey super-duper star Wayne Gretzky, an athlete that strangely was once described as having a physique, a physique of less a great athlete, more somebody who sold underwear at a department store. Now, if people outside of a handful of countries know anything about hockey, or they would say ice hockey, it's probably its reputation for crazy violence, uh, fighting that if not exactly allowed, is condoned. So in such a violent game, how does a slight underwear salesman with artistic flair rise to the top? Well, less and less now, but in the past, teams had a goon, a goon or two, a player whose job was to fight, to intimidate, but most importantly for our purposes, to protect. Wayne Gretzky had early in his career such a protector, the absolutely perfectly named uh, Dave Semenko. Hollywood scriptwriters would kill to coin a name so perfect for a real bruiser. Anyone so much as looked at Wayne cross-eyed and Semenko would have, you know, had the offender wishing his parents had never met. Kind of like what Thor tried to do in the really quite good film Thor Ragnarok, trying to protect his home from his sister Hela and the apocalyptic Ragnarok itself. How about that other Thor that you want to keep on talking about? Good old uh, Dave Semenko. But, you know, I'm not sure any of our listeners are going are gonna to get that reference. Unless, of course, you're of a certain age and you're from Canada. 
But in a crude way, he's not a bad comparison to Thor. Both, as you say, massively strong men who protect others. Okay, but let's get a little more specific. In what way exactly is Thor a protector? Well, before I try to answer that, let me um, back up a bit and set the larger context a little. And let me do this by saying something about what the historian of religion, Murchi Iliadi, talks about. So, in his great book, The Sacred and the Profane, Iliadi says that one of the universal patterns in human consciousness are the concepts of cosmos on the one hand and chaos on the other. Okay, so what does he mean by them? Well, for Iliade, the, the cosmos is a realm defined by sacred space and by order. It's the place that we humans make and call our home. It's our, it's our fixed point from which all future orientation proceeds. Now, chaos, however, is all that dark, formless, amorphous expanse of space that, that surrounds this cosmos. It's space marked not by quality, value, order, and differentiation. In other words, by meaning. But rather, it's a space where everything is homogenous, neutral, and, well, meaningless. So, what are some examples here? Well, like I said, a home, or a, or a church, or an enclosed community are good ones. Cosmos is what's on the inside of that domestic threshold of habitation, and chaos is what lies outside of it. And so, of course, nothing's more symbolic here than the door or the gate, right? Outside of which lies the dark and the unknown. Now, this aspect of darkness, I think, is important. Outside of our cosmos, this inhabited territory that we've carved out and called our home, lies another sort of place altogether. And it's not only marked by, by chaos, like I said, but it's also a place populated by everything that's, that's foreign. In other words, it's full of monsters, dragons, snakes, demons, and ghosts. All of them, of course, a threat to our ordered and structured cosmos, which ultimately means the possibility of a retrogression to disorder, or a re-immersion of formlessness. So, we got to do everything we can to hold on to and protect our cosmos, this uh, little island of ours in the midst of the sea of chaos. You know, just an aside here, that we perceive everything that lies outside of our cosmos as, as dark and dangerous isn't really that surprising. I mean, we forget this because of our, our century or so of artificial light, where there's, you know, there's no longer a distinction between night and day. But think about it. For most of human history, night was just another word for, for the darkness that brought all the menace of the unknown. Night was, for most of humanity, comfort-killing, as Shakespeare put it. Anyway, okay, so... What the heck does this have to do with our subject today, with Thor? Well, Norse mythology actually has some very similar concepts. So, in this mythology, 
they made a distinction between what they called Inengard and what they called Utengard, which is really the same as that between cosmos and chaos, respectively. Now, basically, Inengard meant something like um, a place with an enclosure of some kind, with some kind of boundary, maybe a, a wall or something, that separated it from the areas outside of it. And this outside area, well, this is what they called the Utengard, which obviously suggests the opposite. That is, a space without any kind of enclosure. So, here's the point. Basically, the Inengard was the cosmos that was safeguarded against the, the Utengard, the chaos that surrounded it. Okay, but in this Norse mythological landscape, where and what was this cosmos exactly? Well, it took the form of Asgard, the home or community of the gods. And also um, Midgard, the homeworld of human beings. And chaos? Well, it was called Jutenheim, a place populated by, by frost giants. So the place of the gods and of humanity was seen as a, a kind of cosmos, while the, the vast space outside of it, inhabited by, by dangerous giants, that was chaos. Okay, but again, what does this have to do with Thor? Well, a huge part of his divine role was to protect the cosmos and to banish the agents of chaos. Which is to say that what he'd do is that with his hammer as his weapon, he'd, he'd smote the giants that threatened the sacred order of Asgard and Midgard. But I think it's important to understand that it's not just that he's out there, you know, fighting giants, even though he is, of course, doing that. No, it's actually Thor and his power that in some sense defines and establishes the cosmos. He is, in effect, that very sacred enclosure that protects against the forces of entropy and destruction represented by the forces of chaos. In other words, he girds the world against being swallowed up or, or dissipating into that larger dark expanse of space that surrounds it. So, he's the defender of the gods and of humankind, yeah. But he's also, in some larger sense, the very ground of our existence. Or, to put it another way, he's that which rivets the very, very tenuous fabric of our being. I was going to do one of my weird, but I guess at this point standard, meandering verbal diarrhea things, starting out talking about uh, the Pete Seeger protest song, If I Had a Hammer, seg into some communist hammer and sickle kind of thing before twisting it all back to Thor's hammer. But... Since I learned in the Jesus episode that we posted a little while back that it's so much better to be a child, and if not that, childlike, let me channel my nine-year-old nephew. He would say, like, okay, actually, actually, it's not like, it's not just a hammer. It's named Mjolnir, and it's like totally awesome, and he can fly with it. 
But like, you know, his sister, Hella, she grabbed it and she totally destroyed it with just her hand. But he gets it back because of time travel in Endgame. And he's like the only one who can lift it, except for the one time Captain America totally lifted it. And it was awesome. Is the hammer you're going to talk about anywhere near as totally awesome? Well, you know what? Your nephew makes it sound pretty exciting. But I think it's even far more awesome than that. Okay, so if we look at the the three major gods in Norse mythology, we notice that they all have their, their own type of weapon. I mean, Odin, the chief god, has a spear, which can um, wipe out entire armies. Um, Freer has a sword that can fight by itself. And Thor, well, he has a weapon too. Maybe the most famous one in all of mythology. And it's, as you said, a hammer. It's what he hurls at and kills the, the frost giants with, and other powers of chaos too, like, uh, like snakes. And usually it takes the form of a, of a lightning bolt. A lot like uh, Zeus, actually, who also hurled lightning bolts at the, at the titans, remember. But here's the thing. Thor's hammer is also much more than this. That's to say, it has a significant non-violent and and a creative element. I mean, think about it. As a weapon of thunder, of course, it brought rain. And that's important because what it did is it promoted the growth of crops. In other words, the hammer gives new life. Even Thor himself would, would bring his goats back to life by hallowing their bones with it. So Thor's hammer was much more than a weapon and so an agent of death and destruction. It also played a role in, in consecrating and in renewing life. Actually, you know, on this topic, here's something really interesting. So during the end of the Viking Age in Scandinavia, Many people were apparently wearing little um, amulets of Thor's hammer around their necks. But that's not really the interesting part. Rather, it's, it's this. That they might have been doing it as a reaction to the Christian cross. Because remember, Christianity had been spreading into Scandinavia for quite a while at this point in time. I mean, they even hung these little hammers upside down. And when you compare that to the cross... It's hard not to see this as an intentional inversion of the Christian symbol. In other words, this could have been meant in part as the anti-cross in the last era of paganism. So, to display your faith in Thor was a counterpart to those who wore their cross, which signified their faith in Jesus. Actually, you know, now that I think about it, This reminds me of something that Nietzsche talked about. And, you know, the fact that our theme this season concerns the gods, this might make it even more apt. Okay, so in his later works, Nietzsche uses two figures to illustrate the the, um, juxtaposition between an affirmative attitude to life and and a negative one. He dubs it Dionysus versus the Crucified. So, What does he think that these two uh, figures represent? Well, Dionysus is the Greek god of uh, fertility and wine, um, of celebration, 
vitality, and virility of the life well lived. And for Nietzsche, he represents the ultimate yes to life, to a life lived most fully, suffering and all. Now, by the crucified, however, Nietzsche obviously had in mind Jesus, at least the one that's represented by the, by the larger Christian system, maybe not so much the historical one. Okay, so according to Nietzsche, this image of the, of the crucified Christ, this uh, Christian view, had predicated itself upon escaping life altogether, of answering life with a, with a universal no, and of escaping to another world that must surely be way better than this one. But this was a, a devaluation of life and of this world, Nietzsche thought. It was the deification of nothing with a capital N. And so, in this way, it, it stands in total opposition to Dionysus and his unequivocal, life-affirming, arms-wide-open, yes. Well, so it's hard not to see some of this vital, life-endorsing attitude in Thor, right? I mean, with the help of his hammer, the world he protects is a world being constantly sacralized, consecrated, and renewed. I mean, his hammer is there at the blessing of a birth, at the start of a marriage, and it plays a huge role in the fertilization of fields. Now, this all speaks to an enormous life-creating energy. Now, given all this, I, I wonder if, somewhat like Nietzsche, some of these Viking pagans also saw something suspect in the message of the cross that had become so prevalent throughout Europe and was now encroaching into their northern countries. Was, um, was Thor's hammer a silent protest of sorts against the crucifix and its possible life-denying associations? Dionysus versus the crucified. The hammer versus the cross. Now, it's true that Christianity eventually won, of course. Their churches built over old temples. And it's true that those icy countries didn't ultimately stay faithful to Thor. But that doesn't mean that the Norse religion didn't struggle to maintain itself against a new faith that maybe seemed to them antithetical to every value that Thor embodied, and to his electrifying hammer that instrument of life. You've been listening to if you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode. Yahweh.
Thank you.